Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Dear Diary, Today I had the displeasure of visiting Hilcombe Hall, a rather ghastly 18th century country house in Norfolk. I found the place to be particularly exuberant with its Palladian architecture and its opulent interiors. I mean, a room full of statues is hardly becoming. And as for the staff, well, for starters, I was met by a woman who described herself thusly. Yeah, so I'm Catherine. I'm Collections Coordinator at Hokum, which means basically I look after all of the stuff in the house. Stuff? I've never heard of anything so absurd in all my life. <clears throat> OK, I'll stop doing the cantankerous old lady routine. That was my best Lady Mary Cook impression. She'll make an appearance later on. But like I said, on this episode, we're taking a virtual visit to Hokum Hall. You've just heard from my guide, Catherine Hardwick, collections coordinator and looker after of stuff. So what kind of stuff can we find in this country house? Paintings, furniture, statues, you name it, I have to look after it. And this place is massive, so there is a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's quite a lot of stuff. Um, And the worrying thing is we don't really know how much stuff we have. I'm constantly finding rooms full of things that we didn't know was there. (laughs) Let's firstly describe the house. So as we're in our carriage, let's say, Mm -hmm. driving up, which I imagine is quite a long drive. Yeah, we have, well, not that I'm biased, but I think it's one of the best approaches to a country house in the country. So you start... I think it's probably about three miles away from the house. Three miles? Yeah. Jesus. We're, we're in this for the long haul. And you start by coming under a triumphal arch, a William Kent triumphal arch, which sort of welcomes you to the estate. Like sort of the Jurassic Park doors. Yeah, but <laughs> with less dinosaurs. So you come through your triumphal arch and then in your carriage, probably going really slowly, I don't think they had any sort of turbocharged carriages, you're, <laughs> you're carrying down this drive, which is dead straight and you're just you're looking at an obelisk oh there's an obelisk that was built on top of a hill yeah is that right yes i i I read up about this obelisk an obelisk is like a big sort of 
stone point. Yes. It's a big pointy column, essentially. Big pointy column. Yeah. And it's built on top of a hill, highest point on the estate, which we are in Norfolk, so that's not saying an awful lot. <laughs> the very, very famously flat area of Norfolk, but... Yeah. Okay. Who, who built the obelisk? Why, why is it there? Just... Again, it's William Kent, and it was to mark the highest point of the estate and kind of starting building work at Hokum. So you come past the obelisk and you get this like glimpse of the house through the trees. It's like teasing you because then you turn very quickly away from it. It's like a lady with a fan going, you can see me, but not yet. <laughs> Just the Jessica Rabbit leg comes yeah, out of the curtain. Exactly. You know, like, what a sexy hall. And then you kind of curve back down off that hill, through the park, past the lake, and you swing round onto the north side of the house and you're coming into house through the north, which is quite unusual. We've not got a grand portico or anything like that. You come through what is a really, really tiny door and you come through this tiny door into the marble hall, which is just the most enormous room. So it kind of like opens up in front of you. It's basically all alabaster, so it's bright pink with kind of columns and statues, and it's really just a wow factor. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention, because, yeah, I've, again, I've seen pictures of this place, uh, mm -hmm. that, that hall, and it is it's massive. Yeah. The, the whole place, so I'm going to get this wrong, but it's a palladium, palladium, yes. palladium. P palladium. 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 Thank you very much. This is why you're on the pod, so, <laughs> so that actual words get said correctly. <laughs> palladium build, which is basically, it's sort of modelled a bit on sort of Greek pillars and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, so Palladian comes from an Italian architect, actually, called Andrea Palladio, um, who was building a lot around Venice and Vicenza in, I think, the 16th century. And his shtick was he really looked towards Roman architecture. He wanted to build like the Romans built. So Hokum really is that. We are trying to be Roman, but through 16th century Italian. At the front, there's also one of the most impressive fountains I think I've ever seen. Yes. It's really in that big uh, circular pond. Yeah. So this is a, this is a Victorian invention, but it mm -hmm. is, as you say, fantastic. So it's George and the Dragon, or depending on who you talk to, Perseus and Andromeda, but essentially the same story. A good guy is killing a monster to save a princess. That's nice and everything. But if you wanted a fountain depicting a guy fighting a monster to save a princess, why wouldn't you just install the sculpture of Super Mario? It just doesn't make any sense. The interior of Hokum is just as fancy. Spreading out from the central building are four wings. And guess what? They've all got names. We have the family wing, which is where the family still live. It sounds quite mean they have a wing of a house, but I think it's genuine. Well, it's much bigger than my house. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's much bigger than mine. Yeah. There's a wing called the Stranger's Wing, which is where guests stayed. That's a little bit cold, isn't it? Calling it the Stranger's Wing. I, I'd, I'd be a bit sort of um, offended by that, I think. Oh, I don't know. The rooms are quite comfy. And in the 18th century, you had a flushing toilet, which was very fancy. If you had a flushing toilet, you were really posh. Oh, wow. Oh, stranger's Wing. <laughs> Didn't like it at the start, but now I'm sold. And then um, two more wings. Let's go. Yeah, two more wings. So then we have the Chapel Wing which is the religious wing. There's a family ah. chapel in there. And then the final wing is kitchen wing, which is where all the servants are, basically. Makes sense. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. There's four wings. Mm -hmm. Good themed rooms. It'd mm -hmm. be an excellent new reimagining of the crystal maze. <laughs> and now follow me to the religion zone.
So the person who built this hall is called Thomas Cook. Spelt Coke, but pronounced Cook. Yes. He's the first Earl of Leicester. Yes. And uh, he's a bit of a legend, a bit of a lad, yeah. a bit of a party animal. Yeah. I think Thomas Cook might be all things to all men. His shtick is when he was a young chap, he was orphaned at the age of 10. Hey, if it's good enough for Batman, it's good <laughs> enough for Thomas Cook. <laughs> I think probably in the way of boys without strong father figures, he became a bit wild. He liked to gamble. He really loved cockfighting, liked hunting. And I think most scandalously, he liked talking to people in the village. What? I know. I mean, I'm all, I'm all right with making birds fight each other, but talking to people in the village, that must have been really... Is that just frowned upon because he's an earl and you shouldn't be... Well, he's not an earl at that point. He's just plain old Mr. Cook. Oh. Yeah. So so why was it a scandal then that he was talking to the the locals? I think his sort of his guardians thought they might, they might be a bad influence on him. Hmm. I think he might have been a bad, bad influence on them, more likely. Yeah, quite probably. When did his sort of reprobate ways begin? I think when he was about 11 or 12. I think that kind oh, of like wow. preteen rebellion, you know, no parents, mm. needs a bit of attention, really starts to kick it loose. And so the people looking after him decide they can't have this. They, you know, he needs to be a civilised young man. And so they send him to Europe. They think the sensible thing to do is send him to Europe and he'll come back, you know, educated and erudite and he couldn't possibly cockfight or gamble or anything awful on the continent. This is sort of the 18th century equivalent of a gap year. Yeah, except for Thomas Cook, it was five gap years. Five gap years. Yeah. Oh God, he's that bloke who went to Bali and never really grew up and then he's sort of just trying to find himself, man. Yeah. That's exactly that. <laughs> Just replace Bali with Italy and you're there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Because also the house is sort of chock-a-block full of loads of different like statues and paintings and collections that he's got around around the globe. So it's, it's like when your mate goes away on a gap year and he comes back in sort of hemp trousers mm-hmm. and he's got some masks from Nepal and he went to a full moon party and he's got a tattoo of a tribal symbol that actually means like something off a takeaway menu and... Chlamydia. This is what he's come back with. Yeah, essentially. It's a, should we say, a bit more tasteful than some of the things you might come back from a modern gap year. <laughs> but yeah, he spends five years on a really massive shopping spree around Europe. Uh, so he brings back an awful lot of books. So, so many books, manuscripts, Roman sculpture. Here's a real thing for Roman statues. One of the real kind of stars, which is our statue of Diana, is with us now in Norfolk. She, she's still there? Yeah, she's still here. Oh, nice. Whereabouts in the house is she stuck? Uh, so she's in the statue gallery, which was designed for all his... Makes, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. That sounds like the right place to be. Yeah. <laughs> what other crazy stuff did he bring back from his time abroad? I think probably one of the maddest things, which sadly we don't own anymore, and this is one of the greatest disappointments for me, is he came back with a Leonardo da Vinci manuscript. Oh, that is gold dust. Yeah. yeah. He bought it in Florence and knew enough about Leonardo to commission someone to make a translation, but because it's written in Leonardo's river writing, mirror writing. Um, so he had it copied, but in normal writing, so he could read it. Sorry, because Leonardo, did he... Yeah, he wrote, he wrote, wrote everything backwards. That's just insane. Why? 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 <laughs> <laughs> I think because he could. Just to show yeah. off? 
rather than it was some sort of trick like code that no one would break. Yeah, I think it was because he was just that clever. I mean, that is a hell of a party trick. Yeah. So yeah, so he came back with the a nice shiny Leonardo manuscript that was here for about three hundred years, and then it was sold in the nineteen eighties, um, and it's now owned by Bill Gates. I love how Bill Gates has got a connection to Hoakham Hall. I quite like the story that he used to get big paintings and then have himself painted into the paintings. Yes. Talk us through some of the paintings that he's put himself in. So it starts off, I think, as quite a boring, well, we think of it as quite a boring academic exercise. So he loved the Roman historian Livy, like absolutely loved him and commissioned a load Mm. of paintings with scenes from Livy. So there's... um, the continents of Scipio, so the Roman general mercifully giving back a slave he'd taken as a trophy, the rape of Lucretia, which is, you know, lovely lady being attacked by one of the Roman senators. Oh, I'm sorry, he and he, did, and he wanted himself painted into that scene. Uh, he's not, that one he's not painted yeah, into. I was going to say, that's a, that's a terrible idea, mate. Don't get yourself in that. <laughs> so yeah, see, so he commissioned all these paintings with scenes from Livy and then... I'd say in probably 80% of them, he crops up as a figure in the background. Oh, so it's sort of like, you know how you can get apps nowadays where you can impose your own yes. face? He's sort of like, he's like, it's like the first ever memes yeah. that he's just done in big painting form. Yeah. And if you imagine, you know, there's no internet, there's no television, there's no nothing in the 18th century. You're wandering around some guy's house and you're like, is he, is that him? He looks familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom, though, doesn't have a particularly long life, actually, does he? He's, he's got a few sort of scandals with, um, with, with the ladies. Yeah, he was, by all accounts, I think, a bit of a womanizer. We don't yeah. know anything kind of concrete, but there's all these people writing about, you know, his poor wife, how does she put up with him, and, you know, she's mm-hmm. alone at Hokum again. And so I think he did have a thing for the ladies. Yeah. Who was his wife, sorry? Uh, she was called Lady Margaret, Lady Margaret Cook. Um, who is oh right yes she's something of a hero for us here at Oakham yes go uh, well tell us about Margaret then um so after her husband died the house wasn't finished so she finished it and it, it sounds really boring today but it gets historians really excited she was a fantastic accountant I'd say we have <laughs> all of her books with you know meticulous things that she purchased and she was also adamant about uh, I bought this with my own money this is not my husband ah uh, right yeah <laughs> so but yeah as far as a historian goes that is absolutely yeah. just the find of the century yeah. she's got she's written all this information yeah. down while her husband is just off drinking and leaving her alone she's really yeah she's quite a sad figure then really yeah I think if he was sort of the mad creative genius she was definitely like the stoic individual holding it all together. And she outlives him quite easily, right? Yeah, um, I think it's about 20 years almost, give or take. I want to talk about the jewel he had. Yes, the phantom jewel. The phantom jewel, which sounds very mysterious. Yes, So this is towards the end of his life, which is a key fact in creating the legend of the Phantom Jewel. Thomas Cook is, he's never really been an athlete. He's a bit of a bon viveur, shall we say. He likes his wine. He likes his food. He's a man into his 50s at this point. So you've you've got a picture of him. He's not. 
Yeah, yeah. sure. Very gammon. Yeah, Re- rosy cheeked. <laughs> rosy cheeks. Yeah, veiny nose. Yes. And at this point in time, the Seven Year War's broken out in Europe, and so there's a huge push to create militias and you know men wanting to be like prepared for war and all this sort of you know prancing about with standards and in uniforms and all this kind of thing. And one of his younger neighbours, a chap called Townsend, who's from down the road here at Hokum at um, a house called Raynham, he sets up a Norfolk militia, about which Thomas Cook's quite rude. He thinks they're all a bit silly. <laughs> right, okay. Um, and, and so slap across the face with a glove, I'll meet you outside? Yes, Is it that exactly. level? Yes, that's what we like to hear. Yeah, he's going to defend the honour of his militia group. <laughs> so Thomas Cook being... I think about 30 years older than this chap Townsend who, you know, likes his wine, is not really a sportsman, basically says, get a grip of yourself. I'm old enough to be your dad. Like, we're not having a duel. And so no no duel actually happens. But about three months later, Cook keels over from entirely natural causes. And so because people have got hold that there might have been a duel and then he dies so quickly afterwards... They think he's been killed. They think Townsend's killed him. Oh, so does does Townsend get accused officially? I don't think he officially gets accused, but it kind of passes down into family lore about mm-hmm. the duel. He was killed in the duel. Even though quite clearly his liver just gave yeah, up. Yeah, basically. <laughs> the other character that I'm most interested in is also Lady Mary Cook, who's it comes a little bit later. Hang on, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a little intro for her. Dear listener, you are cordially invited to eavesdrop as we discuss a most obnoxious character. The Lady Mary Cook, I must say, has been the architect of some of the most scandalous diary entries to ever be penned here in Hokum Hall. No person was exempt from her acid tongue and sharpened quill. Simply put, she's a miserable cow. Yeah. That, how, how, how close was that? Yeah, that, that's pretty fair, I think. I did that in the style of Lady Whistledown from Bridgerton because mm-hmm. that's sort of how she's known for her diary entries, which are, oh, you know, she doesn't hold back. No, she is. She's fantastic. She does not mince her words. Again, an, uh, a historian's dream just to get hold of all these diaries, I imagine. Yeah, no, it's fantastic to have that uncensored written word. So talk us through who she is. How does she come to Hokum Hall? Where does she come from? Okay. What's her deal? So Lady Mary is the youngest daughter of the Duke of Argyle. She's born in 1727 and she grows up, by all accounts, almost completely wild. They don't really bother with any sort of schooling or any education. She just kind of left her own devices. In a sort of quite a, like neglected, abusive way or just... I, th- I think it was, was just a choice. bit like... Sort of a railway children type vibe is my like. Right, okay. okay. I think she's having okay. a great time. Okay, fair enough. No sympathy yeah. for her. She's also crazy looking as well, isn't she? Yeah, she's meant to be this really sort of bizarre colouring, really pale, white hair, kind of really light blonde, almost white hair, and these brilliant blue eyes. Wow. So yeah, really striking. Like, like, a, like, a, like a white walker. <laughs> white walker. White cat <laughs> is what she's called. White cat. Yes. The white cat. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, she's also a bit feisty. So in 1747, she's 20 years old and she's told by her parents, right, love, it's time to get married and we've chosen the lucky gentleman. The lucky chap is Edward Cook, who's Thomas Cook, our builder. That is his only son, his only child. 
And is she happy with this? She is not happy with this. She's she's not enamoured with him. She sort of puts on a brave face and he apparently is very gallant. You know, he comes in and he they call it making love when you come in and read poems and say, oh, you know, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen and all this. <laughs> and he's just reciting these love poems to this ice sculpture of a yeah. woman who's st- staring at him. Yeah. Talk about a frosty reception. Yeah. So they're eventually married and she, by this point in time, has... She's worked herself up into a, something of a frenzy. You know, you're an 18th century lady. You might have been kissed on the hand if you were a bit scandalous, but you've never been touched. And suddenly you're a wife and you know, you're expected to lie back and think of England. And <laughs> So she's, she's worked up about this. She's not looking forward to it. And Edward comes in on the wedding night and basically says, don't worry, love, I'm not going to touch you. Um, and oh. goes out drinking with his friends and sort of comes back in at six in the morning, absolutely wasted. And th- I think that's about as good as it ever got for their marriage. So they didn't actually ever have any no, children? No, they never had any children. They never had any sex, actually, which in the 18th century oh. was, you, you just, you didn't hear of it. Well, I mean, was he that bad? I don't know. All accounts of him as a young man suggest, you know, he's quite handsome. He's quite dapper. He, there's all these accounts of them before they're married and he's, you know, very attentive and very sweet. And then they get married and it's like the switch has flipped and he's out every night drinking with his friends and gambling all of his money away. And he dies in his early 30s. He drinks himself to death. Oh. So and then because of this sort of, I guess, resentment of the situation she's been put in, is that what you think turns her into this sort of acid-penned, diary entry i think so it can't have been a very happy time um she tries to divorce him that goes poorly she sort of says he he beat me he once tore my ruff which in the 18th century is not that much quite frankly he was legal to beat your wife yeah it's just a bit of wife beating back then don't know what you're complaining about love (laughs) so they're not able to get divorced she claims that she was locked here at Hokum, up in one of the upstairs bedrooms. But, but then her diary entries also then go off to just, not just him, it's everyone else who then starts getting Yeah, it. so after he dies, um, they'd been separated before that, but he dies and she is a widow and she can kind of come out in society. She, you know, she's got no pressure to marry. She can be in society and she can... You know, she knows all the people, she knows all the royal family, all the sort of great and good. And she just goes to all these parties and watches people and then writes about them. So who were her main targets for her diary entries? What are the juiciest passages? So this is one of my favourite ones. She's writing here (laughs) about a lady called the Countess of Waldegrave, who was widowed and then secretly married another son of the king, the Duke of Gloucester which was scandalous because she was a commoner and a widow and actually an illegitimate daughter. So she couldn't be marrying the son of the king. Uh, Yeah, that that is a a triple no, isn't it? Um, So this this marriage was all hush-hush. But anyway, Lady Mary writes, The Dowager Countess, that some time ago, as soon as the castle clock at Windsor had struck 12, and out of consequence, all quiet, she ordered a rocket to be let off in the Great Walk in Windsor Park which it seems was the signal, for soon after a royal chaise came down, and out of it a certain duke, who usually passed the remaining part of the night in her lodgings. The rocket at last became such a ridicule at Windsor 
that she was obliged to leave it off. But the chaise with the Duke arrived at the same hour. His being there five nights a week was known to all Windsor. What all this is to end in, I don't know, but I think she is very lucky in getting people to keep her company when she acts in such a manner. Wow. Shade has been thrown. That's an 18th century burn right there. <laughs> that, that, that is absolutely, that, yeah. is, um, that is proper not mincing your words. When it says let off a rocket. I think she means a firework, which I also quite enjoy as a covert signal for your lover to come see you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd actually be very, very flattered if, uh, if someone let off uh, a firework for me. I'd take a bloody party popper at this point. <laughs> now, listener, we're going for our next quote from Lady Mary Cook. Okay, so now we've gone to the court in France, court of Louis XVI. So if anyone's mm. seen Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, this is, this is what we're imagining. The Dauphin is much green, but not improved. The Contatoire is handsome and looks lively. The Comtesse de Provence is full as ugly as she has been represented. <laughs> very dark, and her hair on the side of her forehead grows so forward that it very near joins her eyebrows, which are very large. She has the most extraordinary <laughs> nose, and her teeth are very bad, little and thick, and the most ungraceful manner of walking I ever saw. Madame, the Dauphin's eldest sister, though but 13 years of age, is without exaggeration one of the biggest women I ever remember to have seen. <laughs> That's brutal. It's savage, isn't it? Well, because also, like, like you were saying just earlier, in an age where, you know, like, even holding hands was looked at scandalous sexually, yeah. the fact that she's gone that, I mean, that is yeah. really, for that age, is... It's absolute hellfire. Yeah. She's gone with both barrels a, there. She's not holding back. Yeah, and on a 13-year-old girl. Know. That's yeah. outrageous. I, I quite like the fact that it's did you say thick teeth? Yes. Thick teeth. Thick I teeth. Know. I don't That's a horrible thing to say. Thick I teeth. I don't even know what that means. Like a horse. Like three, but in the occupying the space that seven or eight should. And small yeah. as well. She said thick mm -hmm. and small. Like chode. Chode teeth. How does she eventually see out her days? Um, so it's a little bit of a sad end, actually. She's quite long lived. But as you might expect for someone who writes the way she does, um, she doesn't have many friends by the end of her life. And so she dies quite alone, really. Oh. Not the most cheerful ending. O of what? Anything in particular? Or just, I think natural, just causes? natural causes? Old age, mm. spite. But, um, Catherine, I've heard rumours that allegedly her ghost is still said to occupy the hall. So in many ways, she's never left. Yes, I have never seen her. I would love to see her. But yes, supposedly she still haunts the rooms that her wicked husband locked her in. So the rooms she was locked in are now part of the family wing. Um, it's where the family live. And typically the rooms in the attic were where they put the children to sleep. So Lady Anne Connor and her sister Lady Carey had those rooms when they were children. And I think it's Lady Carey, Lady Anne's sister, is absolutely convinced that she was haunted repeatedly by Lady Mary. Wow. What did she say she was doing? I think generally sort of terrorising her, making moaning noises, keeping her up at night. I mean, I can't tell you how many 
white women ghosts there are in mm -hmm. various houses and castles. I mean, really, they are the, the Karen stereotype does filter into the supernatural quite a lot. These women who just will not yeah. go <laughs> and keep on complaining. Imagine being that angry that you can't even let go, even in death. Even in death. Come on, get over it. I feel like uh, Lady Mary would have definitely been a, I want to speak to the manager, yeah. please. I think manager, boss, director, tear the company yeah. down. <laughs> God, I'd hate to hear what she thought of this podcast. Luckily, I'm not going to do my impression, so we won't find out. Instead, we'll just end the episode there. Thank you to Catherine for chatting to us. She and I will return to Hokum Hall later in the series to discuss the important things of life. Between us three, I don't know what the biggest animal you think you could take in a fight is. I'm not, th I'm not the biggest person, but I reckon, I reckon I could take a sheep. I think maybe a large tortoise. I can hear Lady Mary turning in her grave. Until then, sell your manuscripts to Bill Gates, insert yourself into paintings, and mind your manners. Oh, there she is. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bad Manners. If you like the pod, please share it with your friends. Rate it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and make sure you spill the tea on any of your favourite Bad Manners that we could feature in future episodes. This podcast was produced by Atomize Studios for iHeartRadio. It was hosted by me, Tom Horton. It was produced by Willa Malensky, Rebecca Rappaport, and Chris Attaway. It was executive produced by Faye Stewart and Zad Rogers. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore, and our production coordinator is Bella Salini. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.